So do you have a loud friend? You got a loud friend? You know, maybe a, a loud spouse or a loud parent, maybe a, a loud coworker. Someone that does not have an inside voice, that person, you know. Someone that is always the loudest person in the room, even on a Zoom meeting, you know, they just got to be the loudest. Yeah. About 327 years ago, a phrase began to appear, and most of us have heard it by now. The phrase goes like this actions speak louder than words. But we all have that one friend, right? <laughs> that one friend that is convinced that somehow loud words are the best actions. Yeah, we've been there. So, so what do we do? What, what do we do with our loud friend? What do we do with our loud family member? Well, I came across some advice this week that I think is pretty good. Loud people need what's called a volume angel. Yeah, volume angel. And what this person is supposed to do is politely talk to the loud person and, and help them see that stepping out of the front yard into the garage in no way helps anything because everybody in the neighborhood can still hear every detail of their phone call. That's, that's what a volume angel does. One of the tips given for a volume angel is that if someone's being loud in public, you find a way to, to encourage them with a bit of a, a joke, kind of a silent, lighthearted way to get them to, to tone it down. You know, a suggestion would be something like imitating your reeling in a fish, right? Like you kind of catch their eye and, and you kind of do the, you know, as if to say, hey, man, reel in the volume, all right? Tone it down. You know, for, for every person that we know that's loud, we also know somebody who is super quiet, right? They don't have an outside voice at all. They're the kind of person that we can't ever get an answer or a thought or an opinion out of. In fact, their estimation is that words are way too loud for action. They, they just won't do it. Now, me personally, I, I tend to lean towards the teaching of philosopher Briscoe Darling Jr. He once said, eating speaks louder than words. Yeah, so, so this Easter, this, this Resurrection Sunday, what are you eating? What are you eating? Now, I, I know it's the morning time, so I'm not talking about a blue raspberry Pop-Tart. I'm not talking about whether or not you have your eggs scrambled or poached or uh, egg whites only or Benedict. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what are you feeding your soul? Are you feeding your soul the latest updates on the news? Are you feeding your soul the, the latest articles on social media? Are you feeding your soul the, the latest fears on the pandemic or, or economic fears? What are you feeding your soul? Are you feeding your soul's hours of, of night at fort? Are you feeding your soul hours of of Netflix? Are you feeding your soul hours of the educational world peace nutrition of TikTok? What are you feeding your soul? And does it matter? Does it matter what we feed our souls? 
I mean, isn't life all about seizing the moment and, and then just kind of making it through the day, just kind of making it happen now? Well, life is more than that. And what we feed our souls does matter. Why? Well, let's find out. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins. On a hill outside of Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus was crucified on a cross between two criminals. Now, there's some people that will say that's not true. They're, they're skeptics. They'll say that, that everything about Jesus, his whole story, including the crucifixion, is just a, a very well-told fairy tale. Thing is, though, about 80 years after Jesus was crucified, there was a Roman historian named Tacitus, and he was writing something about the emperor Nero, and this is what he recorded. The persons commonly called Christians who were hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea and the reign of Tiberius. Now, someone might say, all right, 80 years later, some historian guy wrote it down and said it was true, but that doesn't make it true. Here's the interesting thing, though. Tacitus, it has been observed, every time he recorded something that he didn't have complete confidence in its historical validity, he made a little note for the reader. Wanted them to know, not quite sure about this one. There was no such note in reference to the crucifixion of Christ. That's just one Roman historian. To deny that Jesus died on a cross would take a huge leap of faith. You would have to ignore centuries of historians. You'd have to ignore scholars, both Christian and atheist, who have said that the death of Jesus on the cross is indisputable. But that's just a little history to stir your mind a little bit. What we're here to do is to try to feed our souls. So, why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did Jesus die? Simon Peter was one of the closest friends that Jesus had. He's one of the few people that for the last three years of Jesus' life, Peter saw almost everything that happened in the life of Jesus. And so he's writing this letter to some folks who were suffering. They were experiencing something that nobody in their family had ever experienced. Not them, not their parents, not their grandparents, not their great-grandparents. Nobody in their community, nobody in their country had experienced what they were going through. It was the first time. Can we make any connections with that? And so Peter wants to encourage them, and, and how does he go about doing it? Well, he writes them this, for Christ also died for sins. Because of the events in the world right now, and because some extremely intelligent men and women created the internet and all the functionality of the internet. Today, right now, it is highly likely that more people are hearing the gospel about Jesus Christ than at any other moment in history. 
mean, just chew on that for a second. That right now, more people are hearing the gospel than ever before because of the events happening in the world. And many people who are hearing the gospel today are not Christians. Some who are watching and listening right now are not followers of Jesus. And so maybe a fair question would be to ask, why would anyone want to become a Christian? Why? Well, Peter just gave us the answer. Peter, in in making this very simple sentence, is saying this, you should long and desire and pray that you might become a follower of Jesus because your greatest problem on this earth, your greatest need on this earth, is to have your sins forgiven. That's your greatest need. Now, someone might be thinking, well, that just sounds silly to me. I mean, the, the whole idea of sin sounds kind of hokey. Look, every, everybody knows the difference between right and wrong. Do they? I mean, is that one of the shots we get when we're a baby? You know, the MMR2 vaccine, the morals, the manners and religion shot? Is that what we get so that everybody knows what's going on? About 600 years before Jesus was crucified, the prophet Isaiah said this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is the Lord's ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have made a a separation between you and God. And God. Now, some people will say, well, I don't know if I buy the sin thing. And here's the reality. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, none of us will ever own our sin. We won't come to sin on our own because one of the ways that we react to sin is to excuse our sin. We deal with sin by sinning more. We say, oh, there's not really any sin. The only way that we can have any concept of sin is by coming in contact with the one true living And so that God made sure that this message got to us, that our sin has separated us from Him. We have been separated from all that is good and holy and beautiful and satisfying. And if that's true, then that means this. Your greatest enemy on this earth is not your difficult spouse. Your greatest enemy on this earth is not your apathetic spouse. Your greatest enemy is not your high-strung child. It's not your rebellious child. Your greatest enemy is not the fact that prom got canceled. Your greatest enemy is not the fact that your sports team season got canceled. Your greatest enemy is not a furloughed job or a family quarantine. Your greatest enemy is not an unseen virus. Your greatest enemy is not an unknown economy. In fact, someone has even said this, your greatest enemy is not even the enemy. It's not even Satan. If Jesus died for sins, then your greatest enemy is your sin. Where do we get that idea? Well, Jesus died for sins. 
Seems like it would make that a big deal. Jesus didn't die just for sins. He died for your sin. He died for the sin that has separated you from God. Now, again, someone might say, well, I don't feel separated from God. I mean, sure, maybe I need to be a better person, try to clean up my act a little bit. But, but you know, at the end of the day, I think the, the eternal clock is running slow, and, and I don't feel tardy. Or someone else might be saying, okay, here we go. The whole world is on this dangerous health alert. And now all these preachers are going to try to preach everybody out of hell. For the last uh, 10 years or so, there have been a, a few times where I had some, some health issues. None of them developed in anything crazy. But, but at the time, they, they felt a little crazy. So what do I do? Well, eventually... I went to the doctor, and after some tests and some scans and some medicine and and then a a return appointment, eventually, for those few times, the doctor said, okay, you're good. And you know how I left those appointments every time? (laughs) I left thinking, you know what? Eating speaks louder than words. Man, I left going, man, I'm going to get a snack. Man, I I just was so excited. I was so much more relaxed after the doctor said, okay, you're good. Isn't that what all of us want? I mean, if we're really honest with our hearts, don't we just kind of want to hear, okay, you're good? Isn't that kind of a desire of what we have going through our minds and our hearts in the morning and in the middle of the day and in the afternoon. What I'm about to say is is heavy, and and it's supposed to be. And after 26 years of of working in churches, I have been in this heavy moment many times. And that heavy moment may look like this. You might be old. You might be young. You might be middle-aged. But the doctor will say, I'm so sorry, things aren't good. And the question of all questions is this. In that moment, will your soul still be able to hear God saying to you, it's okay, you're good. You're good. What are you feeding your soul this morning? Can can you feed your soul that? Have you repented and and turned to Christ and you're not just believing that Jesus died for sins, but you are believing that Jesus died for, for your sins? Are you clinging to and believing in Jesus as your first and greatest and ultimate treasure, your only hope for salvation? And and is that enough? I mean, it's just it's just believing in Jesus enough? Peter seems to point us in the direction of of yes. Look what he says next. For Christ also died for sins once for all. The reason we make such a big deal out of the death of Jesus is because it is an event that cannot be repeated. In the Old Testament, over and over and over again, the, the sacrifices were having to be made. One sacrifice wasn't enough. There there always had to be more, and again, and again, and again. 
Same's true in our lives, isn't it? You're at the little league ball game. Kid comes over to you. Hey, Dad, can I have uh, $2 so I can go buy me some zombie Skittles at the concession stand? Fork out the money. Seven minutes later, hey, Dad, can I have $3 so I can go buy me a watermelon slushie? Seven minutes later, hey, Dad, can I have $5 so I can go buy some deep-fried nachos? And it's one of those moments. It's like, gosh, it just doesn't feel like there's ever enough. Or maybe it's school, and you study for every math test. You go to all the the after-school tutoring sessions. You do all the homework. You do all the work. You you take care of all the extra credit, and you still just barely make a C. It just feels like it's never enough. Or maybe it's marriage. You've watched every video. You've read every book. you've, You've seen all the articles. You buy gifts for every holiday. You buy your wife chocolate and and roses for Valentine's Day. You you buy her a tree for Arbor Day. You you buy your husband 40 pounds of wings for the opening day of college football. I mean, you just do it all. And and still, your spouse barely makes an effort. It It just feels like it's never enough. Or maybe, how about right now? Man, you're washing your hands, you're sanitizing everything, you're, you're, you're social distancing, you're doing everything that's being asked, but the curve's not dropping the way you hoped it would. Or maybe even someone close to you has gotten sick, or maybe you have gotten sick. It just feels like it's never enough. Can I just say that this morning the reason that there are millions of people around the world worshiping the risen Jesus Christ is because we have become convinced because of Jesus that the beauty of the Christian faith is that every single night we can lay our head down at night and we can tell and whisper to our souls again, Jesus dying for our sins was Enough. It's the one thing that is enough. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all, and it was enough to satisfy the penalty of sin once and for all. Jesus will not and cannot die on the cross again because it is not needed. As one song puts it, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. He he soaked it all up. He absorbed that wrath for us. For every sin on him was laid. Here, in the death of Christ, I live. What does that even mean? How is that even possible for someone to to live in someone's death? Well, Peter helps us. Look, continuing in verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. The language here is that the just means to be perfect, and unjust means to to fall short. So Jesus is the just, and and we're the unjust. We, We fall short. 
No matter how many good deeds you do, no matter how many online church services you watch, no matter how much money you give to charity, nothing that we do will ever make us just in front of God. We, we cannot justify ourselves. We cannot make ourselves right before God. But Jesus died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, to solve that problem. Jesus died so that at any given moment, a believer can still have a soul that hears, it's okay, you're good, you're good. How is that possible? Because the just died for the unjust. In other words, Jesus took our place. Jesus substituted himself for us. I heard it put something like this. Imagine there's a little boy with a terminal disease, and they've tried everything that they know, and none of the treatments have ever worked. And the father goes to the doctor and says, look, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take all of those diseased cells out of my son's body, and, and I want you to put them in mine. And the doctor says, look, I, I can't do that. I mean, the science doesn't even exist to make that happen. And, and even if the science existed, do you understand what you're saying? If I were to put those cells in your body, that means you would die. And the father would say, yes, but my son will live. Friend, Jesus did not die to set a good example. Jesus died for sins. Jesus died so that you might live. That's what makes the gospel so beautiful. Jesus bore our own sins in his own body on the cross so that we might find life today and life forever. That's the beauty of Christianity. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's why on this Easter Sunday, on this Resurrection Sunday, no matter what's happening in our minds and our hearts, no matter what's happening outside the world, we can still lay our head down at night and with complete hope that no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever cut us off from the one true God tucking us in and saying again, it's okay, you're good. Jesus paid it all once and for all, and because he has, it's okay. You're good. But there's more. <laughs> Did Jesus die just so that you could sleep good? No, there's, there's more. Listen to what Peter says next. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. There's an ancient story about a, a beautiful young woman, and an eagle came and stole her shoe. And the eagle flew and flew and flew and flew far, far away from where that young woman was. And eventually the, the eagle dropped the shoe and it fell into the lap of a king. 
And the king was, was so curious about this unique shoe and the unique moment that, that he commissioned a search to find the owner of the shoe. And when the young woman was found, he made her his queen. Now, I know that sounds a lot like Cinderella, I know, but, but that's a story that existed 2,400 years before Walt Disney was even born. So let's just kind of take it and try to imagine it. The, the original story is like five sentences, that's all there is, but, but let's see if we can just kind of imagine how it might have played out. That young woman, she would have had no interaction with the king. No, no reason for her to ever cross paths with that king. When it comes to royalty, she would have been lost and without hope. When it comes to practical aspects, she was far apart in distance. She was far apart in background. She was far apart in destiny. But one shoe changed everything. One shoe. That one shoe caused the king to commission his greatest warrior. And he told the warrior, go and, and find the owner of the shoe. And the warrior went and searched the whole world over and, and he found the young woman. And he gave the invitation from the king. And overwhelmed with the grace of the invitation, she was compelled to accept the invitation. And the warrior escorted her to the king. Under normal circumstances, she would have absolutely no ability to see the king. But because of the shoe and because of the sacrifice of the warrior, she became a part of the king's family. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. We have no chance of meeting God. We are far apart in distance, in background, and in destiny. But one cross changed everything. Just, just the one cross. Because God commissioned His Son, the Savior, to go with an invitation, His invitation, and the invitation was to go to the, the weak and the helpless and the homeless, those that are hungry and thirsty without hope. And the invitation was to go to the wealthy and the healthy too. And the invitation was to go to those who were stressed out and anxious, those who were frustrated and confused and lost and afraid. And that invitation goes out from the Savior. And because of the grace of the invitation, men and women and boys and girls, they are compelled to accept the invitation. And they are promised that a day is coming that they will be escorted into the palace where they will live with the king forever. Someone might ask, well, how do we know that promise is for real? I mean, what if that's just some cute part of, you know, a very good fairy tale? Now, here's how we know the promise is real. We know the promise is real because a dead man cannot invite you or escort you anywhere. 
The reality of the promise of one day receiving the beauty of all that is good and holy and happy and satisfying, that promise is defined and wrapped up into one moment in history, and that is the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. You see, it's one thing to say, hey, I'm risen from the dead. But it's another thing for that to be proved. It's another thing that if Jesus was raised from the dead, then he truly is the Son of God. And all those parables, all those stories, all of those teachings, they're not just sound bites from a good moral teacher. They are truth. They are divine. Divine words that have been fulfilled and will be fulfilled. And if those divine words have been fulfilled and will be fulfilled, then we are guaranteed that when Jesus says what he says, we can bank on it. And that means that if Jesus is risen as he said he would be, then that means there is not a single second of our lives where the ears of our soul will not hear. It's okay. You're good. You're good. And one day, it won't just be your soul hearing, it's okay, you're good. You'll hear the risen Savior say, welcome home. Welcome home. Betsy Childs Howard lives in New York City. Her baby is due in four weeks. Yeah, do do the math. Pregnant mom, New York City. She wrote a, a super article this week on being pregnant in a pandemic. And I just want to read two quick thoughts of what she shared there. First, she said this. Somehow it seems if we can just find enough data, we will be able to set our hearts and minds at rest. False. You may find good news but you will also find plenty of ominous news. And then she says this, instead of refreshing news sites and Googling medical studies, pray a psalm, read a novel, cook a meal, embrace the finitude of your knowledge, and do your best to live in the present. That's hard for us, but it's good advice. But you know, as she sits and and waits for these last four weeks to unfold of her pregnancy, I think one of the reasons that her faith is so strong is because of something that I read that Betsy wrote six years ago. Her grandmother was dying of cancer. Her grandmother's faith in Jesus was super crazy strong. And so she was actually given strength to her family because of her faith. And everybody was hanging in there except for this one night for Betsy. This is what she said. I panicked. I was lying in bed waiting to fall asleep. This was the first time I'd faced the death of someone close. That night, my panic lasted for several minutes until I remembered that simple truth. Jesus died and lived to tell about it. That's a crazy, simple truth. And it is so good for your heart and your mind today. She goes on. Death is not a total unknown to the human race. Jesus has been there and come back again. 
I felt enormous relief as the implications of his resurrection rebuked my fearful imagination. And and what does that kind of confidence do to you? What does that kind of confidence and hope and peace and joy in the resurrection of Jesus do in your actual life as you sit at home today? Well, what does that do to you? Well, this is what it did to Betsy. A few weeks later, her grandmother died, and she was standing at the funeral, but she wasn't panicking. With joy and eager expectation, she loudly sang these words. So are we now where Christ hath led, following our exalted head, made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. How can any of those words be true? But dear Christian, this is why they're true. Because the risen Jesus died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God. The risen Jesus died to bring you to God. And nothing, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. You have been brought near. And that's why today and tomorrow and the next day, and next month, and any day that God gives us to live on this earth. We too can sing that song, and we can say, Alleluia, 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 Alleluia. I have been brought near. He is risen. He is risen indeed.